0: My name's Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be getting into our teaching series in the book of Acts in just a moment, but we're going to begin by getting to hear uh, from one of our uh, church family about what the Lord has done in her life. One of the things that we do here is we, we love to hear from each other what God is doing and how we've experienced the good news of Jesus. What we do when we gather as a church is we respond in worship to proclaiming the good news of Jesus to each other, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to the world, and so we the good news of Jesus in the way that we worship and the way that we greet each other and the way that we look at God's word together. And we proclaim the good news of Jesus by telling each other what God has done in our lives. And so we're going to get to hear uh, from that. And so would you guys join me in welcoming up our very own Debbie Montgomery? <laughs> Debbie's going to share uh, her story here, and then uh, I'm going to come back up and just pray for her, bless her, and we're going to all pray for her together. But Debbie, you have the floor. Thank you. Thank you, Taylor.
1: Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Okay. I was raised in San Fernando Valley in West Hills, went to a Catholic church and attended a private Catholic school for nine years. My dad was highly involved in serving the church. We were very, very close. At the age of 45, while I was still in high school, My dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor. He was given a 50-50 chance of survival. Curled in a ball in the hospital waiting room, I prayed for God to save him, and thankfully he did. Fast forward 10 years, my dad suffered a major hemorrhagic stroke, and the doctor suggested putting him in a 24-hour care facility due to his extensive brain damage. Instead, my mom chose to take care of him at home for his remaining eight years. I had a lot of anger toward God during during and after all of that. I was very close to my dad and saw the heavy toll it took on my mom. While my dad was hospitalized for six months following the stroke, we found out we were pregnant with our first child. Needless to say, it was difficult to celebrate at the time. For the next seven years, I would hardly talk to God and rarely attended church. In 2012, I got an unusual kidney infection that persisted for four months and required daily intravenous antibiotic therapy. Through it all, I was still running a business, working 50 to 60 hours per week. My doctor emphasized the importance of lowering my stress to help combat the infection. That was a difficult task, as my marriage was very challenging, and there was a lot of other stress in my life. During those years, I felt like I had it all the big house that was completely remodeled inside and out with a pool, jacuzzi, sport court, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was a perfect gathering space and a great party house for family and friends. We had the nice cars, a beautiful ski boat, a small getaway place in the lake in havasu. From the outside, it looked like we were living the dream. It was clear I would not be able to stay healthy and maintain my rigorous work schedule. So in mid-2012, we decided to downsize a lot. We sold our beautiful boat, our vacation home, and even eventually our remodeled family home of 12 years to downsize to a smaller home and eliminate some of the stress. Needless to say, it was a very tough time for our family. Near the end of 2013, a friend took a step of faith and invited me into a Bible study at Jane Hollis's home. I was hesitant at first and admittedly very skeptical, but shortly thereafter realized it was and would continue to be a huge blessing in my life. The timing was perfect, as it always is with God. In early 2014, the infection came back with a vengeance. I had been warned about this and knew it was serious right away. My fairly new Bible study friends, now known as Soul Sisters, we were praying for me frequently as the infection persisted and ma- my marriage was failing. On top of that, my 10-year home mortgage business was becoming more and more stressful. So I made the difficult decision to leave it behind. By the end of the year, my kidney infection was diagnosed as a superbug. The infection was in my blood and it was not responding to any anti- antibiotics. I was in trouble. I had a hot infection and the only way to save me was to operate. The short version is, at 46 years of age, I was given a 50-50 chance of survival by two top surgeons. I wasn't ready for those odds. After all, I had two amazing young boys in high school and my whole life ahead of me. After visiting and interviewing numerous doctors, I was scheduled for surgery with a team of doctors at USC Keck Hospital. During 2014, having IV therapy daily at the hospital, I felt very alone. I had a lot of time to talk to God and read scripture. I would easily spend four hours a day in the word. I drank it in like it was my lifeline, and it truly was. In the end, I lost almost everything. My homes, my marriage, my business, even part of my kidney. But what I gained was far more important an amazing relationship with Jesus. I realized during that super difficult and lonely time in my life that God had been walking with me all along. It was me that was tuning him out. He was always there for me and still was there. He carried me through the tough times and by the grace of God, I'm here today to talk about it. I gave my life to Christ in the middle of that year, 2014, and never turned back. After the surgery, it took several months to recover, and soon after, in 2015, I went through a very challenging divorce. It took a whole lot out of me, but the difference was I was walking with Jesus hand in hand. His strength, His power, His peace took me through it all, and it was a lot. I actually took a couple years off to feel grounded again. That was risky, too, as I had two boys heading off to college. But God sustained me there, too, and gave me courage, strength, and lots of peace through all the puzzled, curious, sympathetic looks and questions that came my way. I made a few feeble attempts to reenter the mortgage business, but I knew God had other plans for me. Like Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, But it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Maybe when you're in this scary, lonely place where your world has turned upside down, it's easier to let go and trust God. Anyway, that's what I decided to do. In the words of Max Lucado, heaven sees when we trust. In 2018, while considering many different career paths, I was offered a job working for the River Church. I knew it was no coincidence. This is where God was placing me. It had his writing all over it and has been and still is a true blessing in my life. It's been over four years now. I truly enjoy being a part of this river family. What a gift so many of you have been to me. I also have been blessed with a wonderful husband, Ron Montgomery. Shout out to the AV guy. (laughs) Who puts up? With Who puts up with me and loves me through all my brokenness? I could probably write a book about the blessings and miracles in my life. They are indeed many. The challenges, disappointments, and losses have been many, too. But I can honestly say, without Jesus there with me, I don't know where I'd be today. It was during those most difficult times that Jesus carried me, and I am forever so grateful. Thank you.
0: be thank you. Um, we're really blessed by your vulnerability. I know that was really hard. Um, not only because you're going to some uh, vulnerable and tender places, but because it's hard to stand in front of a group of people and go to those vulnerable and tender places. And we're really honored. We're really honored that you did. And we see the hand of God in your life. We're really blessed by you as a church. Um, I am very blessed by you uh, as someone who works with you. Um, and Debbie serves in ways that many of us probably don't see or know about, but we're all blessed by her um, in, in many indirect ways, as well as um, just the wonderful ways that you s- serve us relationally as, as our sister in Christ. And um, we want to bless you, um, pray for you, and just affirm uh, what we see Jesus doing in your life and the grace of God we see at play in your life. so would you guys uh, pray with me if you feel comfortable? you can just kind of extend a hand just kind of as a gesture of, of blessing and solidarity, but uh, no pressure if that feels a little uncomfortable for you, but're we 're going um, to pray here for for Debbie. God we're so grateful for your grace. Uh, thank you for your grace for Debbie. thank you for the way that you've seen her and loved her and been with her. Um, through all of her life. You've held her um, and you've been in a, a lifelong process of wooing her, of drawing her close to you. And uh, we thank you that you've been with her through some very painful times. I mean, even those times were very painful and they came with real painful loss. You were with her and you loved her and you, draw her, you drew her close to you during those times. And like she said, she, um, she went through seasons of real loss, but she gained you. She gained um, the one who loves her and made her and the one who uh, who is faithful to her always. And so we're so grateful for that. We're grateful that that's what you are for us, God. You are the anchor for our souls. You're the one that our souls most need. We see that, um, not only personally, but we see it in our sister Debbie. And thank you for the good gifts that you've given her. Thank you for Ron uh, and the way that he serves us too. And uh, thank you for them as a couple and the way that they bless us and uh, shine the light of Jesus. Um, but we're so grateful for your grace. We're grateful that you do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And uh, we, we thank you for Debbie. We pray for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Thank you. Can we give Debbie a round of applause? Yeah. Uh, we're really honored when um, when we take steps of faith, when any one of us take steps of faith um, to open up and, and share what God has done in our lives, because sometimes, often, um, those are not Easy things to talk about, Um, but it not only glorifies God, it it blesses us as it glorifies God. And so we want to show honor that scripture tells us to outdo one another in showing honor to each other. We want to have that kind of culture. Um, We are looking at the book of Acts. We've been looking at the book of Acts for the last couple months, all throughout this fall we've got a couple more weeks left. And what we've done is we've, we started with these kind of four main themes that anchor the book of Acts and are woven throughout the book of Acts and come up over and over again. As we see this big idea of God continuing the mission of Jesus through the people of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've been saying the whole time that he's doing that here in the South Bay through his people, through not only this church, but every community that proclaims Jesus here in the South Bay. And we've been learning what it looks like to participate in that. So we Started with these main themes that we see woven throughout the book of the mission of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the good news of Jesus proclaimed and the new people that God is creating in the church and how He's bringing those who wouldn't maybe naturally be friends together in this beautiful new kind of spiritual family. And then now we've been looking at for the last couple months or six weeks or so these different kind of specific episodes in the book of Acts where we see God work that stuff out in His people. And now we're going to continue that train of thought by looking at what it looks like to actually, practically, personally participate in the mission of God, to actually get in on the ground level as individuals who make up the body of Christ in what God is doing here in the South Bay. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 17. And then we're going to jump forward a little bit to 22 to 34. We're going to skip a couple verses just for the sake of time, but you can uh, pull that up uh, on your phone or, or if you've got a physical Bible, you want to read along with me. I'll read aloud. I'm going to pray and ask that God would speak. And then uh, we're going to get into it. So Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 17, and then 22 to 34. Before we get in, let's just take a moment to pause and in our own words, our own hearts and mind, ask the spirit of God to speak to us as we look at God's word. So right now, just take a moment, maybe take a deep breath and, uh, and just ask God in your own words, God, would you speak to us right now? Would you speak to me right now? God, would you speak? Come Holy Spirit. Acts 6, 17, 16 and 17 and 22 to 34. Now, Paul was waiting for them. That's Timothy and Silas. While he was waiting for Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And down to verse 22. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he gets invited to this place called the Areopagus. He says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. And I found also an altar with this subscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all humankind uh, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps find their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man, that's Jesus, whom he appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection, of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. That's God's word for us this morning, written by the writer Luke in his own language and style and context, but inspired by the spirit of God. And every time we open up God's word, he has something to say to us. So let's pray once more, ask that God would speak, ask that he would show us what it is that he would have uh, us be formed by this morning. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray, God, that you would give every single one of us a fresh word, whether what we're looking at is super familiar or totally unfamiliar. God, we thank you that you love every single one of us. You know us, you see us, you call us to yourself. And so we pray that you would give every single one of us a fresh word. Thank you that we can bring our full selves to you in the safety of your grace. We don't have to hold anything back. We don't have to put on a mask. We don't have to pretend or fake. We can be real with you knowing that you'll meet us where we're at and that you'll draw us towards where you want us to be. So we pray God that you do that by your grace. We pray that you give us not just information in our heads, but transformation in our hearts that we become the kind of women and men that you always made us to be. We pray for this. We thank you that it's possible for your grace. We thank you that you loved us long before any of us loved you. And we say that we love you too. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, ask any any young person entering the workforce for the first time, any new college graduate or high school graduate entering the workforce for the first time, what they hope for in their career. And you'll hear, among other things, a consistent theme, purpose. I want my life to count for something. I want to live with purpose. Ours is a cultural moment across all generations, not just younger folks, especially shaped by a fundamental desire of the human heart. We don't just want a comfortable lifestyle to live. We want a compelling purpose. Purpose to live for. We want to give our lives to something that matters. And compared to other places and other times, we place a special value on doing work that we perceive to be meaningful. One writer, a couple of years ago, summed this up in research on navigating this reality as a leader, a business leader, a manager of some sort, and, and he, he wrote it in an article for the Huffington Post. He put it like this: He said, "It's officially time that we do away with the spent and ineffective motivation tactics of the last century. People aren't primarily motivated by acquiring and achieving things. We're primarily motivated by fulfilling." A purpose what drives our energy what drives our commitment is a sense of purpose we want our lives to count for something and all the other stuff is great we want that too please we'll we'll, we'll take the lifestyle yes thank you but what we want to give our lives to what was worth sacrificing for is purpose we're motivated by fulfilling a purpose And we want our lives to count to something. And I think what the biblical writers would tell us is that this is a God-given desire. If you look at the accounts of creation and what it means to be made by God as the image of God in creation, I think what we'll see is this desire for purpose is a God-given desire designed by God in the human heart. And what scripture would also show us is that the sweet spot of life is not just finding something we're passionate about. It's about living all of life, including the things that we're passionate about for the purpose that we were created for. And that's a critical distinction because I think many in a place like the South Bay are trying to fulfill our God-given desire for purpose primarily by pursuing our passions rather than connecting our passions for the purpose that we were created for. We think, if I just find something I'm passionate about, if I just find something I'm really good at, if I just find something that I'm excited about, then my, my longing for purpose is going to be fulfilled. But when we find out is when the passion is an end in and of itself, when the passion is the thing that's gonna, that we're going to turn to to meet our need for purpose, it falls short. Uh, a, a professor and kind of cultural commentator, uh, not a follower of Jesus to my knowledge, but a woman named Anne Helen Peterson wrote a really interesting article uh, for the, uh, the news portion of BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed News. So there's like BuzzFeed, what kind of bread are you? And then they've got like a reputable news source also. Anyway, so you wrote a really interesting article for the reputable part of BuzzFeed um, about uh, this quest for passion and the disillusionment that has come as a result from her point of view. She says this as a college professor watching her students search for their passions in life. She says, expectations encapsulate the modern raising project, the modern child rearing project, in which students internalize the need to find employment that reflects well on their parents, steady, decently paying, recognizable as a, quote, good job, that's also impressive to their peers at a, quote, cool company and fulfills what they've been told has been the end goal of all of their childhood optimization, doing work they're passionate about. At least that's the theory. So what happens when young people start the actual search for that holy grail career and start, quote, adulting, but it doesn't feel at all like the dream they had been promised? She goes on by looking at various research and anecdotes from her own network of relationships and concludes this. We don't feel the satisfaction that we've been that we've told we should receive from a good job that's fulfilling, balanced with a personal life that's equally so. When pursuing passion is our primary way of fulfilling purpose, in and of itself, it leaves us cold. Even doing something we're passionate about and that actually contributes to meaningful goals will not fulfill our God-given desire to purpose unless we're actually living all of life for the purpose that we were created for. Which begs the question, what is the purpose that we were created for? The narrative of scripture reinforces over and over and over again that the purpose we're created for is something like to glorify God, to make him, to to respond to him for being as great as he actually is, as we enjoy him and partner with him for his purposes in the world. It's about God. And we live that out by enjoying him and partnering with him for his purposes in the world. And one of the most important ways that we do that in this moment, in the big story of history is basically the thesis of the book of Acts. We looked at it week one of the series, Acts 1:8. Jesus speaking to his followers, but you will receive power. When the Holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth, what it looks like to live in the purpose that we were created for the purpose that we long for the purpose that actually gives purpose to our passions as we pursue them and to all of life. Even the mundane stuff is as we enjoy God and partner with him as his witnesses, His witnesses by the power of the spirit, wherever we find ourselves. We could put it like this. If you want to get in on the sweet spot that Jesus invites us to live into, if you want to get in on the abundant life of Jesus, it has to include participation in God's mission of redemption in the world. And I think there are so many people trying to follow Jesus, following Jesus, who are stuck or putting a ceiling in their relationship with Jesus because we imagine that the abundant life of Jesus is somehow divorced from the redemptive mission of Jesus through us in the world. We think the abundant life is something that's just going to happen to us or that it's just a a feeling that God is going to give us or a set of circumstances that God is going to work out in our life. And we divorce it from actually participating in what God wants to do in the world. And what the book of Acts shows us, what the passage that we're going to spend most of our time in in Acts chapter 17 shows us is that the abundant life of Jesus is worked out in us as we participate with him as his witnesses in the world, as we live all of life under the umbrella of showing the world how great Jesus is, how good the good news of Jesus is. But what does that actually mean? What does it actually look like? How would I even begin to live that out? That sounds like a bunch of spiritual mumbo jumbo. It sounds like a bunch of high concept, sounds great like church talk, but what does it actually look like? To be a person on the ground level in the day-to-day trenches of adult life or the day-to-day trenches, if you're a student, is student life, what does it actually look like to live that out? And I think we're going to see three things here in our, pa- in our, um, in our, uh, our, our passage here in, the, in Acts 17. Um, before, though, you'll notice in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, there's a big, big, big emphasis on the Holy Spirit. In fact, in many ways, the Holy Spirit is the main character of the book of Acts. Uh, and um, we're going to we're going to look mostly at the model we see lived out in the life of Paul here today. Um, I would really encourage you to go back. Uh, James gave a fantastic teaching on the leading of the Holy Spirit. Brooke gave a fantastic teaching on the power of the Holy Spirit earlier in the series. I would really encourage you to go back and to listen to those because in many ways, that is the like, like, absolutely essential foundation point for everything we're going to talk about today. But in this passage, what I think we see, we see that embracing this abundant light invitation of Jesus to partner with him in his mission and the power of the Holy Spirit looks like this, going wherever God puts us, sharing the message of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. If we could just simplify it, And look at this passage and say, what do we see the Holy Spirit doing through his people? In particular, in this passage in Acts chapter 17, it's going wherever God puts us. Sharing the message of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. So let's begin by saying, we go, where do we go? We go wherever God puts us. Where do we live this out? What's the context for the purpose that God has put us? It's wherever God puts us. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, there's some really interesting context here. You just kind of see it in that little line. He's Paul's in Athens and he's waiting for Timothy and Silas to show up. Um, There are many places in the book of Acts where the apostle Paul is going somewhere on purpose to go proclaim the message of Jesus, planted a community of Jesus' followers, get some stuff going. In Athens, Paul's actually just on his way to catch a boat. He's, he's traveling from a different part of modern-day Greece through the region on his way to catch a boat, and he happens to stop in Athens as he's waiting for Timothy and Silas. He's not going there with some, like, master plan. He does, he's not there for the purpose of ministry. But while he's there, where he happens to find himself... God has some really cool purposes to work out in and through Him. Wherever we find ourselves, we are God's called person. We're God's sent person to that place. Every one of us finds ourselves somewhere. We live in a neighborhood. We're in a family. We have a network of friends. We have a place of work. We have something in the community that we are involved in. Every single one of us has been put somewhere and we've been put there from God. And whether we planned it or not, whether we wound up there for this purpose or not, every single one of us who follows Jesus has been sent there on purpose. Every single one of us is God's called person to that place. If you're a follower of Jesus, regardless of how you got to the places where you find yourself, you are God's sent and called person, at least for now. So do you follow Jesus? Do you have a pulse? You have a calling and your calling is not a mystery. There might be things that God reveals along the way that the spirit reveals along the way, but You have a calling where you are right now, even if the clouds didn't part and the spirit didn't descend like a dove onto your shoulder and say, go here, wherever you are, you are God's called person to that place. And I wonder what the South Bay would look like if all of us embraced that. What if every single person that follows Jesus in the South Bay went through our lives, knowing deep in our souls, I'm God's called person to this place. I'm God's called woman to this place. I'm God's called man to this place. My notes are flying the spirit of God is moving. Um, what if we went, what, what if we really viewed all of life as if we were God's called person to that place and that God was going to show up if we trusted him, listened to him and took steps of faith in that place. I think the spirit of God would move like gangbusters if we really viewed all of life through that lens. And the beauty of it is that gives meaning and purpose to even the most mundane things, even the most obvious things, even the most routine day in, day out things. God has something for us there. It might be small. We'll talk about later. The model of this passage, I don't think is specifically what the apostle Paul does. He's got a unique calling, unique gifts, unique context and redemptive history. It might not be that we get invited to, this, to, to the seats of power to proclaim the good news of Jesus with some eloquent speech. In fact, that might not happen for any of us. But the point is that God has something for us, something for us in every place we find ourselves. If we take the time to live as if that's true, we go wherever God has put us and we go sharing the good news of Jesus. So in, uh, as the story progresses, um, Paul realizes that God's got something for him uh, in this place where he didn't necessarily plan that, but he, he's there, and more on more on how he gets there later. But. Uh God's got something for where he's put him, even though that's not, that wasn't his plan. That wasn't his intention. And he gets invited to this place called the Areopagus. And the Areopagus was kind of like the Athenian like version of elite university slash think tank slash like, cultural political center. Like, we don't even really have an, an analog for it in our context, but it's an important place. And uh, he gets invited to share the, this new idea, this new message of Jesus that they're hearing for the first time. And, uh, this is what he says as he begins, uh, begins to share the message of Jesus with, uh, the, the, the folks at the Areopagus. He says this, he says, for as I passed along and observed your objects, objects of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown. This I proclaim to you. This gives us a such an important insight as to what we're doing and what our call is as those who are called to be witnesses to Jesus. Because what the apostle Paul observes rightly is that the Athenians, all people, are living in worship to something. Every single one of us has something that we build our lives around, some value that we think if I just have that thing, then all is right in the world. It's the, it's the value to quote um, Pastor Tim Keller, church of, uh, pastor of a church in New York. It's the value that gives value to all of our other values. All of us live in worship to something and to share the good news of Jesus is to help connect the dots, to be someone who comes into someone's life, to help connect the dots for how the thing we, the one we were made for is our true creator, God, who reveals himself in Jesus. But all of us are worshiping something. I love the the, the way that a um, writer named David Foster Wallace uh, put this really eloquently in a commencement speech he gave. He's not a follower of Jesus. Or, uh, he's uh, since passed away, um, was not a follower of Jesus, but he has such an... A keen insight into the worshiping heart of humanity. He puts it like this He says, There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then he goes on to list out how many things we all know intuitively that we can live as objects of our worship actually weren't meant to be our objects of worship. He, he goes on to put it like this. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you'll end up feeling like a, a weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to numb you from your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. What Foster Wallace is showing us here is that every person worships something, and most of us can identify at least some things that seem bad for our souls to worship. and if there are some things that we intuitively know are bad are are not not meant to be worshiped, doesn't that imply that there's something or rather someone for whom we were made to worship? And what we're doing when we talk about sharing the good news of Jesus, we're talking about showing how Jesus completes the incomplete stories that all of us would live into when left to our own devices. Jesus is the completion to each of our stories. He's the one that we were actually made to worship. We're worshiping something. We're trying to live our life for something. We're organizing our life around something. And what we're doing when we're sharing the good news of Jesus is we're being those who help connect the dots in ways that are appropriate and kind and loving, as we'll learn as we learn to live in the heart of Jesus. But we're those who help connect the dots to show how Jesus is the one who completes our incomplete stories. And the apostle Paul goes both to the synagogue and he goes to the marketplace. This is an all of humanity thing. He goes to the religious people and the irreligious people. We connect the dots for all people to see how Jesus is the one that meets the deepest needs of our heart. Jesus is the one who completes the incomplete story. The good news of Jesus completes our incomplete story and it does, it does so Jesus does so Because the good news of Jesus is that God has done for us what we could not have done for ourselves to be reconciled to the one that we were always made to live for in the first place, God himself. Because what we see in the good news of Jesus is though each of us have worshiped things that... We weren't meant to worship we've oriented our lives around that which we weren't meant to orient it around it's what the, the bible calls sin we've each in our own ways lived far from god god himself has come to us he's entered in as the man jesus christ and he's come as a human understanding our humanity, living with our weakness and our frailty and our vulnerability, yet doing so without sin. And then he's taken on our sin, our broken tendency to try and find life where life cannot be found. Hi, sweetie. Um, And he's taken that on his own back. He's carried it on his cross. He's let it crush him. He's borne the penalty for our sin, our shame, our broken tendency to try and find life where life can't be found. And in so doing, he reconciles us to the one that we were made to live life for. That Jesus has come to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He's come to bridge the gap between us and the one we were made for all along. The one that we worship as unknown, the one that, we have an incomplete story. He now completes our story. We're to be those who partner with people who walk alongside people to help connect the dots that Jesus is the one who completes our incomplete stories. And Paul's model here of standing before these great thinkers and giving this beautifully eloquent speech, that's not necessarily the model that we're taking away. That's not the format that most of us are going to find ourselves in. The model that we're supposed to see is how Paul completes the incomplete story by showing these folks who Jesus is. And we can do the same in our context, according to our gifts and our personalities that God has given us and what makes sense in the places that God has put us. It says in in this passage in, in verse 17, Um, it says that when, when Paul realized that God was up to something in Athens and and had purposes for him, that he reasoned in the synagogue and reasoned in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. He reasoned. And this, this word reasoned, it's a dialegami. You don't care about that in the Greek. Anyway, uh, it shows up all over the book of Acts. Over and over again, as the Apostle Paul and his companions go to these different cities, they reason with the people they meet there. And in almost every occasion, it implies multiple conversations, not just one conversation. In other means, it implies relational interaction, not not a speech given from one place uh, like I'm doing right now. It, it, It implies this kind of ongoing relational conversation. And many of us are so wary of how we've, how we've heard ta- this kind of thing talked about uh, in, in church settings like this, because when we imagine these kinds of conversations, we imagine them as these greasy, pushy, transactional sort of sales pitches where you're just in a conversation to seal the deal. And it's impersonal, and it's forced, and it doesn't it feels like anything but loving. But the reasoning model that we see here means relating to people as people, beloved image bearers of God, and especially in a cultural context like ours, that means that this can be a slow relational process where we let these conversations breathe, where we listen, where we give people time and space to push back and to ask questions, and we're partnering alongside with them as their friends who love them, reasoning with them as friends to show them how Jesus completes the incomplete story that all of us would live in and left to our own devices. And while reasoning does take some initiative, more initiative than status quo, it also means that we can let these conversations breathe. It also means that we ought not be pushy It also means that we ought to give space to listen and time to process and ask questions. And it all begins by taking the initiative to just go a little bit deeper and listen a little bit more empathetically than the status quo. I'm convinced that God opens up a world of opportunity to work in and through us when we just take the smallest step to go a little bit deeper with the people that God has placed us in life with when we just take the initiative to ask a little bit deeper question about what's really going on in life, when we just live as more intentional friends, listening about what's really going on. And when we do that, God shows up, God provides opportunities and we need to step in and it takes steps of faith to, to share how Jesus has worked in our lives. But God provides opportunities when we just take our relationships, when we love people well enough to go just a little bit deeper and there's no gimmick. I used to lead these, um, these workshops, uh, at a, at a previous ministry that I, that I helped lead, um, the workshop was called how to talk about Jesus without being a weirdo. And, um, I would get asked in these workshops all the time, like, what's like, what's your conversation starter? Like, what's your line? I'm like, like, you want like a pickup line, like, like for Jesus, like, and it, it used to drive me nuts because that so misses the point. The point is that there isn't a gimmick. There's not a pickup line for Jesus. The point is that we, enter into people's lives, listening to what the Holy Spirit is doing. And we love people well enough to be present in their lives that we can actually speak in and, and show who Jesus is through our lives, through what God has done in our lives. The point is, we're reasoning to connect the dots to show how Jesus completes the incomplete stories that all of us would live into. And we'll close with this, that we do so with the heart of Jesus. We're, we're doing this as those letting Jesus show us how to view people and how to treat them, how to, to view the world around us. You know, Paul realizes that God has something for him, that God has purpose for him in Athens. Uh, in verse 16, it's while he was waiting for them in Athens, it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And this is such an it's an interesting line to me because in many ways it echoes several instances where Jesus's spirit was provoked when he saw the brokenness of the world around him. We think if if you're familiar with the life of Jesus and no sweat if you're not, but um, there's there's several instances uh, where, where Jesus's spirit is provoked, where he sees the temple being used for profit and using, using the things of God for selfish gain. His spirit is provoked within him. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem at one point, it says his, far, his heart was filled with compassion because he saw that the people were like sheep without a shepherd. There are these moments where we see Jesus' spirit provoked and now here in the power of the Holy Spirit as the Apostle Paul is following Jesus, he now has the heart like, a heart like Jesus where his spirit is provoked and his spirit is provoked because he sees that the city is full of idols. What he sees is that here are folks around him in a place where he's just going about doing his life who are far from God. And he's not angry at them. He's not like, you heathens. He's like, this isn't how the world is supposed to be. We're supposed to be connected to our creator. We're supposed to find life in our creator and his spirit is provoked within him. Paul's heart is broken because he sees that people that God loves in Athens are far from God, far from the God that loves them and calls them to him. And this is fascinating in many ways because Paul is in, uh, in Athens, at least in the circles in Athens he's in, he's, he's got less cultural power than the people that he feels his spirit provoked for. And so he's not, this isn't condescension. This isn't like a charity. This isn't like, oh, those poor folks. These are people with more power than he has. And yet his spirit is provoked. I want these people to know Jesus. I want them to be connected to the God who loves them and made and made them and calls them to him. And I'm convinced that Jesus's people will never really get in on Jesus's mission, will never really embrace and live in the abundant life sweet spot that Jesus invites us to. will not see God move and show up in and through us in the ways that, that, that he wants to move unless we truly take on Jesus's heart. We could talk about all like, you know, how do you answer this question and how do you answer that question? And what's a way to clearly explain what Jesus has done? We could we could get so practical and none of it would mean anything if we weren't living our entire lives with Jesus's kind of heart. None of it would make a difference if we, weren't, we, if we weren't so in tune with the love of God and the goodness of God and the worthiness of God to be worshiped, that we weren't moved the way that Jesus was moved, the way that we see the apostle Paul move to love people the way that God loves people. We have to take on the heart of Jesus. And I think we get stuck in a couple ways. We get stuck first from just status quo living that that where we just embrace South Bay life, business as usual. We're just going through the motions. We've got things to do, places to be, responsibilities and deadlines and diapers to change and uh, friends to go hang out with. We just got stuff we got to do. And we get, when we get stuck in living in the status quo and we don't take the time to see how God might be moving and to think about how God might love the people that, around me and to think about how great God is and worthy to be worshiped, if we don't take on the heart of Jesus and we're just stuck in the status quo, we'll miss taking on the heart of Jesus. We'll miss what God wants to do in and through us. We'll miss this key component of the abundant life that Jesus invites us to. And we'll also get stuck if we channel our energy of the bro- that in response to the brokenness of the world towards self-serving outrage that comes from embracing the culture of war rather than embracing the way of Jesus. If our if our energy of, of of about the brokenness of the world is channeled in self-serving ways and it's just like ah the world's not going the way I want the world to go. And we get we get kind of looped into a a, a way of expressing our feelings of, of, towards the brokenness of the world in a way that's self-serving about the way that about the way I wish the world was rather than loving people well in front of us and longing them to be reconciled with the creator who loves them and for the world to be on earth as it is in heaven, not because we want the world to be a certain way for our own ends, but because we, we, from the heart of God, we, we want the world to flourish. We're going to miss Jesus's heart too. We'll miss it if we get stuck in apathy. We'll miss it if we get stuck in self-serving outrage. What, we're, what Jesus is calling us to is to be so in tune with the love of God, so in tune with the worthiness of God, that we love the world around us the way that God loves the world around us. And so as we close, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we actually have Jesus's heart? How do we actually see the world the way that God sees the world? How do we actually love people the way that God loves people in Christ? There's some really practical things I think are really helpful. Um, I, I think, first of all, it's praying that God would give us his kind of heart making that a part of our prayer life. God, would you help me to see the world the way that you see the world? Would you help me to love the people around me, to see myself as your called person to the places where you've put me? Asking God to to create that heart in us. uh, I think that's critical. I think beginning to pray for people, pray for specific people that, that God's put in your life. Not only does God move through those prayers, God changes our hearts through those prayers. Something that I, I find really formative is what I call prayerful people watching. It's just taking the time as I'm going about in my life to pause, at least in my thought life, long enough to think about the fact that people that I see all around me are loved by God. And just walking, walking around the neighborhood, walking you know, to and from your car, from your office, walking on your way to get to errands and just thinking, God loves all of these people. And putting yourselves in God's shoes and imagining what God feels towards these people, I find that to be really formative. But, the, but even those practices, powerful as they may be, won't really change our hearts unless the thing that we're being moved by is the love of God for us in Jesus in the first place. The way that we actually see the good news of Jesus as truly good news. Unless we actually see that Jesus is the one that meets the deepest needs of our heart. He's the one who really does complete the incomplete stories that we would live in, in our own devices. Unless we see that God has done for us and Jesus what we could never have done for ourselves. Given of himself fully, self-giving love on the cross for your sin and my sin to reconcile us to him, the one that we were truly made for. If we don't see the gospel, we won't see Jesus's heart. And so in our worship now, as we close, as we go to the table to celebrate communion, as we think about what it means to live life in the first, with Jesus in the first place, we do so as those responding to the good grace of God in Christ for me and for you to cover my sin and your sin, to draw us in to God who loves us and made us and calls, himself to, calls us to himself. So right now we're going to close with a time of prayer. Um, I went too long. I'm sorry. But we're going to, we're going to pray. We're going to invite the spirit of God in to continue speaking to us. And so right now, um, I'm going to invite us just to kind of take a moment um, of just quiet reflection. I'm going to ask, and I'm going to just ask you all to come before God and ask God, is there anything specific that you want me to take away from what we've seen in your word this morning? What do you have to say to me? Is there anyone that you want me to love more intentionally to take steps of faith, to go deeper with, is there a place in my life that you want me to see specifically as your called person to that place? Lord, what does this mean for me? Let's take some, a moment now just to reflect, to listen right now, God, we come before you. We ask that you would speak. What would you have for us? Come Holy Spirit. Is there anything in particular that you want from this text that you want us to see? Come Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that the good news of Jesus really is good news. Would you help us to see ourselves as your called people? To wherever you've put us, that, that we're your sent ones to those places. Would you help us to see the ways that the good news of Jesus completes the incomplete stories that we would all live in if left to our own devices? Help us to take steps of faith to go deeper, to love well, to listen well, to reason graciously, kindly, treating people as people, your image bearers, who you love. Helping connect the dots, God. Not feeling like we have to know every answer or be able to communicate things articulately or have a particular gift or personality type but just being willing to take a step of faith and, and letting you show up. And God, would you help us to do so with your heart? Would we help us to be so in tune with your goodness and worthiness and love that we can't help but love the people that you've put around us? But we can't help but love the South Bay. We know you love the South Bay. Would you help us to love it the way that you love it? Help us to love people the way that you love people. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close here, we do so by celebrating the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus come in the flesh as one of us, his body broken for us, his blood shed covering all of our sin, past, present, and future. And so when you're ready, I invite you to partake of the elements over here to the table to my left, your right, and take some time reflecting on the good news of Jesus for you that God has done for you what we couldn't have done for ourselves. And God loves you personally and put himself personally in your place that you might be reconciled to him. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day. I love you.